Well, I'm not sure if you noticed there, but Sue left us with a bit of a cliffhanger in the book of Mark. I know that as we're starting into what is a very familiar text, it's easy to think about all the different times that you've probably heard this, either if you grew up in Sunday school, probably heard this a number of times through your Sunday school cycle. I'm sure we've talked about it a few times ourselves over the course of my time here. This is one of those that you've probably heard a lot of sermons about, and yet I want to let you know that we're going to make our way all the way through verse 44. I won't leave you with 38. We're going to see how this actually ends. I think one of the most profound points that I read came in one of the commentaries uh, in looking at verse 30, which is the first verse that we had. If you remember from back in verse 7, Mark chapter 6, verse 7 had this statement. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. Remember, that's what set up our text last week. The question of how do we go forth into the field on the mission that God has given to us was then uh, sort of exemplified by the story of John the Baptist. And if you remember, that didn't really turn out well, it might seem, on one reading of the story for John the Baptist because he was headless by the end of it. But it did seem to be deliberate where Mark was saying, if you're seriously going to serve God, seriously going to be sent by God, this is the consequence we need to at least accept beforehand, that we'll lose our life in order to gain it, that we will take up our cross, that we don't have a life of just bliss and prosperity before us, but that serving Christ has eternal rewards and yet temporal difficulty. And so we looked at that, and then verse 30 essentially gives us the bookend of it, right? Verse 30 says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now, what's interesting is, and this is, this is uh, what the, the commentator, again, this is the same guy that I quoted last week, Donald English, the same point that he made uh, about how little Jesus seems to tell about what happened when they went out, it's interesting that he gives a, a similar amount of detail in them coming back. Here's the way Donald English described that proportionality. Remember, they went out. They did all this stuff. Why don't we hear more about it? Why did we hear only details about John the Baptist and his death? And why do we get a similar amount of detail about them coming back to Jesus? English says this. It's almost as though more important than what they had done is there coming back to him to report it? Can Mark be saying that even preaching, teaching, healing, and casting out of demons do not of themselves make those who do them disciples of Jesus? Now, if you pause there, you can hear some of Jesus' other words, right? Lord, didn't we in your name do all these things? And Jesus says at the end of the day, sorry, there's, there's nothing in eternity between you and me because you didn't even know me. English is continuing, we'll call him Donald, calling him English feels a little weird. Donald continues, they must, it seems, report back to Jesus as well. The clue is in their being sent by him, doing what they were instructed to do by him, returning to him, and then staying with him until sent out again. All these other things that they've been doing may be fruits of true discipleship, but they are not the root the root it's, is attachment to Jesus himself from whom the disciple's life comes. 
And I got to say, just reading that right out of the gate changed the whole way that I approached this text. There were a lot of things I wanted to think about, and there was even a little structure that I had to this that I abandoned because Mark is going to do something really interesting. We don't see it in verses 30 through 44. But he is going to reference back to this a number of times, and he's going to say what Jesus did The disciples misunderstood, and then he gives a because. He says why they misunderstood it. He says because they misunderstood the loaves. In fact, just like we noticed that verses 1 through 5 are kind of Jesus calling all his disciples, and 6 on is going to be him sending them out, there's something that's going to happen really over this next section of Mark as well, and it's that Jesus is going to be perpetually misunderstood. And so if Mark says the disciples are going to misunderstand what we know is coming, and that that misunderstanding is going to be foundational to how they misunderstand Jesus' ministry later on, and if he refers back to this moment specifically, one time even in the words of Jesus, so there's a little teaser, what we're actually going to see this summer through the book of Mark is just how much Jesus is misunderstood, how much what he says is misunderstood, and how much what he does is misunderstood. So in light of that, light of Donald kind of reminding us, it's not just us going and serving, but it's coming back and being refreshed that matters. And in light of Mark saying to come, how much this moment is misunderstood, that's actually what we're going to look at this morning. What is it that we can forget? Or in a positive way, what is it we need to remember when we're the ones out serving God? Because if we're going to put ourselves into this, We could certainly put ourselves into the passage kind of in the way of those who were in the crowd being fed by Jesus. That would have been one way to approach the text. And to be honest, that's the way that I started thinking about it. But when I realized how much it's the disciples who seem to be the ones in need of these lessons, I realized that that's that's the bulk of who I'm preaching to. And that's who I look at in the mirror. Somebody trying to serve Jesus, but who gets discouraged in the process. Somebody trying to be a disciple, but who sometimes finds the task of serving Jesus to be incredibly wearying and discouraging, just hard. And in that difficulty, I tend to draw the wrong conclusions about God. It seems like what the disciples were doing. And so in light of that, what we've got today, and you can sort of see this in your bulletin, the main question we're going to ask is, what is it that we can forget about Jesus when we're serving him? The first thing I think that we can forget is that Jesus offers rest for his followers. Listen to how that starts out there in verse 31. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, some of this would just seem to be pretty obvious, right? It's obvious at times that, you know, if somebody who's working on your team is just not even having a chance for, like, lunch, that it's probably wise to just schedule a little bit of time for them. That's true on the surface level of what's going on here. If you just look, these guys have been really busy. They've gone away, they've come back, and now everybody is kind of rallying to them, and Mark, on a sidebar, says, remember Herod? Herod was concerned about what was going on because remember how he killed John the Baptist? Ah, that's what it's going to be like sometimes. 
Well, that's what it's like right now for the disciples. They are extending themselves and kind of getting nothing back. They're tired. They're weary. Now, I got to admit, sometimes on a Sunday when I come to the pulpit, I kind of feel like, I mean, we got a lot before us. I'm at the plate, and I feel like, man, we got we to run the bases all together here. There are other times you get up, and because of the songs, the prayer, the way that the Lord's sort of been at work, it's like, I feel like I've already stolen, you know, third, and I'm like halfway to the plate by the time we open up the text. I mean, you can hear in the songs that Keith chose some of these themes, can't you? Come, all you who are weary, come and find. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Why is that important for us to remember? I think that it's important for us to remember because when you're serving God, sometimes you can view him as really harsh. Sometimes when you kind of go into this life thinking, God, this is what you're going to accomplish, this is how it's going to work, and this is going to, these are going to be the results, and we don't get that, we can start to accuse God. We can blame him. Remember, that's the whole story of the book of Job, isn't it? God was abundantly faithful, in fact, he had no peer in terms of how faithful he was to God. And yet, the way the book sort of unfolds, it seems as though he suffers at the hands of Satan, right? We understand behind the... But he loses almost everything, suffering like nobody when he's faithful like nobody. And then he's got friends that are worse than everybody, it seems. Job's just having it really rough. And the reason is because, if you remember in the very beginning, Satan had asked for permission in order to be able to push him because he says, some people follow you only, God, because you do good things for them. Who wouldn't follow somebody like that? And so the question, just like God has asked many of his saints through the years, is why is it so easy for us to view God as harsh when he doesn't give us what we want? Why, when serving him in particular gets hard, do we often forget this one fundamental thing that we ought not to ever forget, that Jesus offers rest for his followers? Listen to the way he just says it. He says, I want you to come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now in that, obviously Jesus is inviting people to come to him, with him, away from what they've been doing because much has been happening. Much, many have been coming, many have been going, and they haven't had any leisure, and so they go away to a place to rest for a while. This isn't the only time Jesus has ever said anything like this, isn't it? In fact, the whole basis of the first song, the first verse of the first song that we sang, is in come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's interesting how just that third to last word, burden, it never gets used or described in any context today to describe something pleasant, right? If you were asked me, hey, how are things going at home? And I'd say, well, life feels like a burden right now. You wouldn't think I was complimenting my family or my life with them. We always think of burdens as something negative. But that's not the way that Jesus kind of pictures this life. He pictures this life 
as the way a farmer would bring along a young oxen, strap him up to a big bulky guy, share the yoke with this one who knows how to walk, let that one not necessarily even pull much of the yoke, but just kind of walk along with the big one and find that the way we ought to do this can be light if we do it with Jesus. Which is why he can say, I'm the one who will give you rest. I'm the one who's gentle and I'm the one who's lowly in heart. And you then ultimately, out of laboring alongside me, here's what it'll feel like. It'll feel restful. The first question we have to ask ourselves, right? Is do we really, in the midst of doing things that are tiring, do we find our relationship with Jesus presently to be restful? And if the answer is no, let me just warn you of the danger that I think I find in my soul when that happens. It's that I accuse God of not providing rest. I accuse him of lying there in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. I accuse him of sort of this sense that what you want out of me is something harsh rather than something caring. If you, you find that danger for yourself, if you'd even look and just ask, boy, I've been, I've been tired lately, but have I noticed the rest that Jesus provides for me? And think back to where that word rest really originates in the Bible. God took a group of slaves, and after their centuries of slavery where there was no rest and there was nothing but harshness from those who were their overlords, he brings them to a mountain and says, here's something that's going to be really, really important for you. It's that you rest. Because I rested. At the very beginning, I did stuff in six days, and then I set aside a day for rest, and I'm going to give you that exact same pattern. Isn't it odd that thousands of years later, we've taken that command, just like many of the Pharisees did when Jesus was walking the earth, took a command that's for our good and turned it into a burden. That's why so many of Jesus' uh, miracles get done on the Sabbath because he's trying to drive home. The, The Sabbath was made for you, not you made for the Sabbath. There's so many things that Jesus has granted to us, given to us, this meeting, the times where we could peel away from our daily activities and just spend time with Jesus. And what do we do? We, we turn them into checklists. Oh, I came to church. What was it now? Seven out of eight Sundays. So I've got to be doing pretty good with God. Yeah, because that's what he's doing in putting a church together. I opened up my Bible. Now, what is it? Oh, it's 29 out of 30 days. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Not sure why I checked my watch on that, but you know. You see how that's just ingrained in us? We view God as harsh and demanding. So even the stuff he's given us for rest, we turn into something that we think we're, we're using for, for his approval. That fundamentally has added this view that Jesus is harsh rather than that Jesus offers rest. I think it's the first thing we can forget when we are serving God. Second thing we can forget kind of shows up there in verse 33. Now many, it says of the crowd, saw them going and recognized them. Vacation is about to be ruined. 
And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he was annoyed with them because they needed so much from him. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like when you saw a ministry opportunity present itself, a need present itself, just someone who was hurting, there was a certain sense that this, what arose in you wasn't what arose in Jesus. And because we felt annoyance from other people and because we felt annoyed ourselves, we then ascribe that to God and we assume wrongly that Jesus is mainly annoyed when we have needs. But the second thing we need to remember is that Jesus feels compassion for his disciples. He offers rest to us when we're weary, and he shows compassion when we're needed. When he went ashore and he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Just like we can assume that God is harsh when he sees us and he sees us just as resources to be used for him, when we're needy and weak, we can often then assume that Jesus is either uncaring or maybe even worse, he's ignorant about what we really need. We can assume God is harsh and we can assume God is ignorant but just like we need to remember that he offers rest, we need to remember that he feels compassion. So significant is the fact that Jesus feels compassion that the author of Hebrews ties it to the very nature of what we celebrate every Christmas. That God didn't stay distant from humanity, but he married himself to humanity. He joined us in the incarnation. Why? so that he could feel compassion. Listen to Hebrews. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our compassion, or our confession. Why? For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does that passage assume? It assumes that we will have times of need, right? That's the very end of it. That's the qualifying condition. It also assumes that we will think that God is unable to sympathize with our weakness. And so as a result, we won't have confidence to go to him. Why would I go to someone who couldn't understand how I was doing or who would judge me as just weak and needy and pathetic? But in one way, you could say God became pathetic like us so he could be sympathetic to our needs. He joined us in weakness. He passed through the heavens, didn't stay, so that he, in every respect, all the way to the point of being tempted to sin, he'd get us. He'd understand us. And the author of Hebrews says, that's why he came. And so here he is, having come, having passed through the heavens, he encounters not just one person with need, 
but a host of people with needs who were interrupting his plans to provide rest for his disciples. And in the midst of the interruption, he sees an opportunity. Why? Not just because he's strategic, not just because he's wise, and not just because he's sovereign. It's because he's compassionate. I think one of the reasons that we sometimes, as those who follow God, who try to serve God, don't come to God is because we don't believe this about God. We think that what God wants from us is to be stronger, to be less needy. We think that what God wants for us is to be more confident and to have a little bit more skill or a little bit more power or just a little bit more stick to We ought to be different than we are, and so until we're different, we can't come to him. But that's just the exact opposite of what this says. In our time of need, we are to have confidence to come to Jesus because just like we see here in Mark 6, he has compassion and knows that in those cases, we are a flock that is just scattered around, wandering into dangerous places, out, outside of where we're, we're to be protected. We're like sheep without a shepherd, and the great shepherd looks at us and says, I feel this for you. I feel compassion. I feel sympathy. And we don't want to forget that. Let's not judge Jesus as ignorant of our needs or uncaring. And let's not judge him as harsh. But then look at what he does next. Look at verse 33, how Jesus, the one who is not harsh or ignorant, is also not distant. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. They ran there on foot. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion because there were sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. Verse 33 sets us up, doesn't it? Many saw them. Not a few. It's the same reason he calls them a great crowd. And despite the fact that what we're supposed to learn about Jesus first is that he's compassionate toward the many, compassionate toward this great crowd, they are going to then have a great need. And it comes about just very obviously in verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Remember, this was supposed to be the vacation resort. It's not supposed to host a great crowd. But... The hour is now late, so send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Why would the disciples be able to make that observation? Well, if we remember, they had had no leisure to eat. They were probably pretty hungry. And so they're assuming of Jesus, maybe you're not feeling the way we're feeling, but if we're feeling this way, they're feeling this way. Jesus, you got to shut it down, man. This is a desolate place. People got a long walk. They got to get something to eat. What are you going to do? Verse 37 is fantastic. You give them something to eat. I don't know. And this is one of those moments that I've said before. I wish I heard tone. I wish Mark told us how Jesus said this. Because I could think of a lot of different ways, right? Jesus said, exasperatedly, you give them something to eat. Jesus said stealthily with a little, you know, raise of his eyebrow, why don't you give them something to eat? Jesus said exhaustedly. I, I don't know how he said this. But what he did is he included us. 
If we place ourselves not with the crowd, but we place ourselves with the disciples, what's happening is that Jesus is reminding us that he shares ministry with his disciples. And this takes a lot of nuance and a lot of balance because this point can undo the first two, can't it? Trust me, you just told me that following Jesus is going to kill me like John the Baptist. And frankly, sometimes when I'm serving you, God, I kind of feel like I'm dying here a little bit. So I get that point. Well, let's not forget the first two. But if we've taken that all the way to the extreme and thought kind of passively that God's going to do whatever he wants to do and it doesn't matter what I do, this is probably the point we need to park on and remember for a little bit. We, the needy, we, the forgetful, still become vital in the way God wants to carry out his plan. Jesus wants to feed these folks. And in some ways, he's going to do it without them. But recognizing their point, he can't do it without them in the way that he chooses to do it. Because we shouldn't forget that Jesus shares ministry with his followers. So they, hearing him in verse 37, say, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give, them, give it to them to eat? That recognizes, I think, the very point that all of us sort of feel. You have a young child. This child has been given to you by the Lord. You're aware, on one hand, that if this child is going to grow up and not imitate all of your faults as a parent, but actually become something that the the Lord will be able to use, it's going to be his doing, because you're, you're absolutely incapable. But then you read in other spots that you're supposed to train in a certain way. You're supposed to speak in a certain way. You're supposed to act and set an example in a certain way. And you recognize this tension. God's going to do what he does, and yet he's going to use me. We talk about this frequently in terms of our, our relationship with each other here. You may want to just pick the friends who are like you, but then you recognize, boy, there are some folks that I see I could actually be good in their life. Now, in their life, God's going to mature them. He's going to sanctify them. He's going to do what he's going to do. But he's also, it seems, capable of using me because he calls me to certain things where I could be instrumental in the process of the ministry that he's accomplishing in their life. It's it's what it means for us to be able to be parked here in a community that we haven't quite yet figured out how to reach. And we're trying because we recognize God could do whatever he wants Frankly, the entire community all around us could wake up and people could sort of, we could find ourselves like the, the, like Philip with the Ethiopian, right? I'm just doing my thing. And somebody comes to us at the front door of the church and says, I've never read my Bible before. I just read this. What does this mean? Who is this talking about? It's okay. Look, God could do that. He hasn't as of yet, put everybody under the portico so that when we drive up, they're all sitting here and waiting. So what does it look like for us to be a faithful gospel witness? On one hand, we recognize God's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to save who he's going to save. He's going to reveal himself as he chooses to. And yet, he uses us. And if you can accent the first point, I think here in verse 37, we just ought to hear Jesus' words. Friend, brother, sister, co-worker. Go give them something to eat. 
And if what you largely feel coming out of that is like, <laughs> the need far eclipses what I have in the first place. We want to remember that Isaiah 55 text that we read and declared together. How did we hear all this stuff about God in the first place? We didn't pay for it. So if ministry arrived to us without us paying, then the ministry God wants to accomplish through us also isn't dependent on our resources either, is it? It would be silly to enter into a relationship with God and think that the only way to sustain that is through what we have. That's not the way the gospel works. The gospel isn't just the ticket into the kingdom that's free and then the rest of it is done by your work. Actually, grace that sustains us all the way through our time in the kingdom is always free. And yet, the work God's doing is to give us work to do. Ephesians chapter 2. We are his workmanship. Super cool, right? God's at work. But we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who's the worker of verse 10? There are two, aren't there? You and him. He's worked in you so that you could do the work that he prepared in advance for you to do. He's the one plow in the field inviting you to come and enjoy the labor along with him. He's the one saying, I, I want you to come to this table and then help serve some stuff at the table. And we're thinking, I don't have anything to bring to the table. He's like, no, you don't get it. It's all on the table already. I just need you to help pass it around a little bit. That's the way this relationship works. But we don't want to think that Jesus has just saved us for us. As though what we're mainly to do is just sort of in an isolated way, enjoy the good that God's given to us, and then eventually just be with him in heaven. The metaphor of creation starts in a garden and ends in a city. And there's labor all through it that's glorious and that is being shared with us by Jesus. So that's about where we ended. Let's pick up the rest of the story as we look at the fourth point that Jesus doesn't want us to forget. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Now, if, if you're a chosen fan, you know at this point which one of the, the disciples is starting to do the calculus, right? All 12 of them! You don't have to be that smart. You don't have to be Matthew. You don't have to be Thomas. You don't have to be somebody who's like particularly prone to detail. You don't have to be an accountant to know this ain't gonna work. We got, as we're gonna find out, 5,000 guys. And it's not just guys that are in the crowd. A rough estimate could put ourselves right around 10,000 people. And with five pieces of bread, two fish, Jesus is telling 10,000 people to sit down in groups. Some will be 50 and some will be 100. And if you're the disciples at this point, you're probably backing away. 
Because you're looking and saying, God, the work you have to do can't be met by the resources that we currently have. And I'm still hungry. I haven't eaten. And now these people are supposed to eat five loaves and two fish that might work for a little bit of a snack for the 12 of us. And aren't we important to you, Jesus? But what we have next is that Jesus takes the little and feeds the many. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the fish, to set before the people. That's a little weird. And he divided the two fish among them all. Where's verse 41 and a half? Because verse 42 reads, and they all ate and were satisfied. Mark is like the worst storyteller, isn't he? (laughs) Jesus took the disciples, divided them two by two, and sent them out. The unbelieving, ill-equipped disciples sent them out to do kingdom work, and they did it. Mark, tell me, what did that look like? Nah, I want you to hear a little bit more about John the Baptist. Like, that's really lame, dude. And in the same way, Jesus takes five loaves, two fish, set a blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, divided the two fish among them all. No 41 and a half. No sense of how it happened, just that it did. And if you're uncomfortable with that, I don't think you can be a Christian. Because God says he spoke and things happened. It's the way he created. And we get so few details that leave us, I'd just like to know a little bit more about that. Now, all you need to know is that I can and I did. That's all I need you to know. Fast forward to this moment. Jesus, you had nothing. And I'd really like to know that I'd like to know how this happened. Uh, Yeah, that's not important. All you need to know is that I can and I did. In some ways, faith is the reading of the Bible, finding that God can and did. Fellowship, in some ways, church history can be nothing more than the record of finding out that what it didn't seem God could do, he could and he did. And then that lands for us and we realize that Jesus provides enough because the hungry disciples finally get to eat in verse 43. They took up 12 baskets full of of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Add on and we could probably get up to 10. But it's verse 43 that I want you to see. I think it's the 5,012 number that really impresses me. It's not just the 5,000. It's the specificity of who needed to eat. The disciples weren't able to eat. Let's go get some rest. Oh, we're super popular. We still haven't eaten anything, and there's a lot of people, and they all need to eat. When will I eat? Jesus provides exactly enough for his followers. And in some ways, you could say they probably ate better than they would have 
if the disciples hadn't been part of the miracle in the first place. To me, this is the one question I have to ask myself. God, if you hadn't called me into service, would my life be better? It'd be different. God, I see other people who it seems are getting something they want, and I just, I don't know exactly. Lord, you've called me to do this. You called me to give this up. You called me to give that up. You called me to, to do this and not to do that. And I, I look at the end of the day, and sometimes I'm just, I'm just still really, really hungry. And I see this people, this person, and they're applauded. Somebody telling them, well done. And Lord, you didn't call me to do that. You called me to do this. And I see this person, and they're saying, they're being told, well done. And this person's being told, well done. And that person's being told, well done. And brothers and sisters, all we have to ask the question of is when we get to heaven and we look Jesus in the face and he tells us, well done, do you think your next response is, oh, that's not enough? Absolutely not. It won't matter how long we were, to use this analogy, hungry during this life. It won't matter how much we gave up if at the end of it, Jesus said, that was the path I asked you to walk. That was the way I asked you to follow. That was how I wanted you to serve. And that's what you did. And I know you gave a lot up. But well done, my good and my faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. I promise you this. You won't be saying that's not enough at that moment. So the thing we have to ask ourselves is do we think Jesus provides enough? As we're waiting, as we're hungry, as we're working, do we think Jesus has provided enough? The battle with sin's too hard. Yeah, okay, but has God given you enough? I see a culture just marching its way into unbelief and thumbing their nose at God. Okay, but in the midst of that, has Jesus given enough? And in some ways, this last thing we can forget kind of encompasses the rest of them, doesn't it? He hasn't provided enough sympathy. He hasn't provided enough purpose. He hasn't provided enough direction. Listen to three more verses and three words that hit me in the midst of them. The first word is all. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You can tell he's talking about finances in this context. But then he makes a broader statement than finances. He said, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As is written, he's distributed freely. He's given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Maybe another word you need to hear isn't the word all, it's the word each. Maybe you get the all thing, but when you think about your specific situation, it's hard for you to find your spot in it. Listen to the word each. 
1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks, or a speaking gift, as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves, or a serving gift, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter takes the full breadth of giftings, those who seem to speak and those who seem to serve, everything in between, and it's all the same. For each one of us, whatever that gift is, we're not to do it in our own strength. We're not to be the ones who speak our oracles, but God's, and we're not to serve with our strength, but with God's. And the last word that you might want to know is, all right, God, you're doing this with all of us and you're doing this with each of us, but there are a few situations just feel impossible. And the word you might want to remember is every. Paul says again, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Yay, indeed. I, this has been like my favorite part of this service, I just have to say. We need more tiny and loud yays for so many of these points. Guys, do you get this? Your master isn't harsh. Your master isn't ignorant. And your master isn't poor, cheap, and stingy. He provides enough. 